Please be seated. Let me invite you once again to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, this time to chapter 3, as we continue in our study of the seven churches to whom Jesus dictated letters, John penned them. Our hope as we go through this series is not simply that we learn uh, stuff, uh, but that we would find ourselves in these letters, our series we've titled Finding Ourselves in the Seven Churches of Revelation, because the things that Jesus addresses in each of these letters are things that are very common among churches, and since churches are made up of people, among you and me, us, we are, are very, uh, these are things that are, are very common and that could also be true of us. Not everything, perhaps, but somewhere in here we will find Jesus' instructions and encouragement that pertain to our lives, and so as we look at these things, it's an opportunity to look at our own hearts, our own lives, and to have God himself speak directly to us. So we come to the Word, we want to be able to benefit from it fully, and it's not by our intellect, but by God's grace that we do so. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we come to this portion of our service, we give ourselves to you, for Lord, this is the time where we long to hear your voice, the instructions, the corrections, the encouragement. For we are a people who come some broken in need of healing and encouragement. Others perhaps um, complacent and needing a sense of renewal. Lord, we are in constant need and yet we have a God in you who is constantly gracious. Now as we come to your word, the word that you have inspired, we pray that your spirit would be at work within us to reveal to us our own condition, to point us to you, and to even enable us to hear your voice through the words that are read and even preached. Lord, bless us in this way that your word may do its intended purpose, which is to enable us to die to our sinfulness, and grow in the joy of becoming like Christ in his righteousness. Lord, this is our desire. We trust that your word will do it. Feed us now, we pray in Christ. Amen. The reading this morning comes from Revelation 3, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then, what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May the Lord bless us and give us understanding from his word. In July of this year, you may have seen, as it was carried in newscasts all around, across the country, a New York woman who had accidentally overdosed on drugs was t- rushed to the hospital where she was pronounced dead. Several hours after the pronouncement, she was taken, having been an organ donor, in to have her organs harvested, only to be found that she was actually still alive as she began to fidget while just prior to anything taking place. A horrifying story, but topped perhaps only by an event that had taken place a couple of years prior as a 49-year-old Russian woman was pronounced dead after having experienced a heart attack taken to the hospital and then taken to the morgue. And then at her funeral in an open casket as they were preparing to close it, she awoke heard the mourners, understood what was going on, and then had a heart attack and died at her own funeral because she had been pronounced dead. It's both as horrifying as it is, and and yet the laughter, the amusement of our own foolishness and, and futility. But the thing that these two instances had in common is that these were two people who both were thought to be dead, and yet the reality was that they were alive. As tragic as their circumstances are, equally tragic is what Jesus is confronting because the church in Sardis had the opposite problem. They were thought to be alive, and yet Jesus says, you are dead. They were like walking spiritual zombies. They were going through the motions, not aware that they were dead. They were continuing to carry on. Uh, They looked like they had life, but there was no life in them, and Jesus confronts them. It's a church that had a tremendous reputation with other churches within their region and in their own community. It was a flourishing congregation. We understand or we can guess by the description of them is that this was a church that had everything that was going for it. It had every program that you can imagine. It was packed. It was adding people consistently. It had a large and a flourishing budget. It had a big-time talent, and because of the numbers of people that were coming and participating in all of the activities and ministries they were engaged in, it was a tremendously influential church within their own community. And as you look at a church like that, it would be easy to ask, what more could anybody want? And not just at the church itself, but the people who make up the church, because there is no church apart from people. And so if a church was not full of people who were committed to be engaged in different activities and involved in the various Bible studies and serving the different generations in the church and going out into the community and engaging in mission for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God, if it wasn't for the people that were involved in that, there would be nothing that is getting done. So this church people that were a part of it were doing everything you could possibly imagine. They were an example that others would look at and say, I wish we were like that. I wish we were like that as a church, and I wish I was like that as a person that would be able to do the things that the people in that church are doing. Jesus confronts this very church, and we're reminded by Jesus' confrontation what theologian David Wells says, that not all that brims with success is full of life. Jesus is addressing the people in this church who have this reputation of being alive and vibrant and doing so many great things. He is very direct. He gets straight to the point. And it's interesting that he does so because as he's writing this letter to this church, as he's written these other letters, every church that he's writing to has areas that they are in need of of encouragement about, and most of them have areas of, of need of 
correction. And he does both and most of them, except this church. The church in Sardis is the only church that he writes to that he has no commendations for them whatsoever. He just comes and tells them, you have your reputation to be alive, but the reality is you are dead. He was telling the people in Sardis, you're all show and no substance. And the fact that he's confronting them on this is addressing the fact that this is a serious issue. The fact that he addresses them with no commending, no specific encouragement, tells us that spiritual deadness is a serious, tragic issue. And in confronting the church and writing to the church in Sardis, he's not only correcting them, but he's correcting you and me because spiritual deadness is something that is a very common thing. We may be people who are like the church in Sardis. Because we're going through the motions, we feel like things are good, we can list and uh, check, have a checklist and, and check things off that we have done in the past week, the past month, the past year, whether we've been in missions conference, whether we're regularly in Sunday school, we are teaching, we are engaging in different activities. And we can list all of those things off that are all tremendous things and assume because those things are getting done that we are doing well and we may be also walking zombies spiritually. Or you may, like I am often, aware that while I'm going through the motions, something just seems missing. There's a deadness within me, a need of renewal. So whether you are one who is aware and of, of periodi- periods or, or presently in, involved or presently experiencing just a, a sense of deadness, a, a spiritual apathy, though you're, you're here and you're committed and you're hungry for something new, or whether you're one that is going on all, all, uh, all cylinders functioning and you're unaware Jesus has something to say to us this morning. It's important to hear what he has to say because when you hear what Jesus says, or at least as he's indicting him and says, look, you're dead, you're already pronounced dead, it would have been very easy, very reasonable for him to have given up on these people. That's not what our Lord does. As a great physician, he diagnoses their condition, and then he offers a prescription or a regimen for them to experience renewal, revitalized health move from deadness to life. He does so in a three, with a three specific things. And the first thing that he exp- expo- explains to them and he says to them that they need to do is they need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus begins in the introduction here because uh, uh, as he's talking to the church and to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits and the seven stars. The angels that he's writing to are the angels each church is represented has uh, figured as an angel that is responsible. So he's writing to the angel that is uh, connected to the church in Sardis. And then he writes about declaring who he is. He's the one who has the seven spirits and the seven stars. Now, the seven stars perhaps represent the, the churches themselves uh, that each have, a, have an angel. But then he also says that he talks about the seven spirits. It's figurative language that is common in the book of Revelation. In some ways it can be confusing, although this one is not particularly difficult to understand. The most concise that I read comes from theologian J.I. Packer, and he just says this. In the number symbolism of Revelation, seven signifies divine completeness, and the seven spirits certainly signify the Holy Spirit in the fullness of his work, his power and his work. And so what Packer is pointing out that Jesus is is addressing here as, as he's introducing himself. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who has authority over the Holy Spirit, even in the fullness of his work and power. Now, that sometimes is confusing for us 
because we as people believe in one God, and God has revealed himself in the Scripture as one God who has existed in all eternity in three distinct persons. All three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, are equal in their glory and worthiness to receive power. And yet we see Jesus saying, I have the authority over the Holy Spirit, even as he's referring, helping these people understand their need of the Spirit. It's a very simple explanation is that while each person of the Trinity is equal and worthy of glory, the character of our God is demonstrated in the fact that two of the persons take subordinate positions in their relationship. They are no less worthy, but they seek to glorify another. Christ, who says, I don't do anything that my Father hasn't told me, who is equal to his Father and yet says, but I will submit to what my Father tells me to do. And the Spirit, who is equal to the Father and to the Son, whole purpose is to bring our attention to the glory of who Christ is and what Christ has done. He opens up our eyes. He opens up our hearts so that we may see our need of him. He points out things that we are in need of changing, and then he points to Christ, who is our perfect example, so that in Christ we may be able to have fulfillment. And the Spirit continues to be at work and to empower us that we may change and be all that we are to be. And here Jesus is pointing us, is introducing himself as the one with the authority over the Holy Spirit, uh, over the Holy Spirit and, the, and the necessity of the Spirit. And he is applying this and saying, look, the first thing is to be aware that you are in need of the Holy Spirit. You are in need of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Addressing the church in Sardis this way he actually is, is helping us because Jesus is addressing a temptation that we are all prone to. And what that is is that we try to maintain spiritual vitality apart from the Holy Spirit. In other words, we are so prone to just continue on in our own energy, exercising gifts that God has no doubt given to us, but we act without of our own gifts and our ideas and our, through our activity and our creativity and whatever seems to be easiest for us, we can function and we can function for quite a while. The problem that we have, though, is that in some ways we're not a whole lot different than your laptop or our, our iPhones because we can function with all the apps going, but it only eventually leads to a deadness. It saps our energy because we were not actually created to operate independently. We are in need of being plugged in to our power source who is the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is pointing out the need that we have of being connected to the Holy Spirit. And so what the church of Sardis need and what you and I need is to just be continually reconnected with the Holy Spirit. Now, when I say that, it, I mean, it has nothing to do with speaking in weird languages or other weird things that sometimes get associated when people talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's simply yielding our lives to the Spirit who has given us the Word, who is alive within all who believes, realizing that He is speaking, He is changing us, He is challenging us, listening for the voice, and then acting by the prompting of the Spirit, not simply by our own whims and inclination. It's important that we understand that. And as Jesus is addressing them, uh, identifying themselves in connection with the Holy Spirit, he's telling us that the Spirit's primary function, the first way for us to be reconnected, the first step towards our reconnection, is to recognize not just the presence of the Spirit, but the one to whom the Spirit testifies, the one who holds the seven stars and the seven spirits in his hands. 
when we recognize Jesus and what he has done for us and what he has promised to do in us, then we tend to yield more to the Spirit. The Spirit is poured out upon us in fullness. It's exactly what happened in the book of Acts. As the people were worshiping God, uh, being made aware of their own sin, and yet the grace of God that had come for them in Jesus Christ, as they gathered together in worship in Pentecost, having been confronted by Peter with the, the message of the gospel, God poured out his Spirit upon them in power. And the people were able to experience a unity that they had not had before, They were breaking down walls towards hearts and lives. People were set free. They experienced tremendous joy. And God in his grace continued to add to the number of people that were part of the fellowship, that were experiencing the benefit of Christ's salvation. I believe Jesus here is pointing us to that same kind of an experience. I understand we're a Reformed church, and so there are some who will probably shrink from that and say, Pentecost was once, that's it. And I would just politely, I say politely, but it won't be that polite, say, who says? See, it's one thing for us to say that because some have overemphasized odd things that are then declared to be part of the Spirit. It's another thing to recognize that the truth of the matter is, as the pouring out of the Holy Spirit began at Pentecost, it did not end. reaffirmed by Reformed theologian of a previous generation, John Murray, who makes the statement, if Pentecost is not repeated, neither is it retracted, because this is an era of the Holy Spirit. You and I are in need. If you're feeling drained and run down, or if you haven't stopped take inventory because you're too busy, even with church and spiritual things. I ask you right now, if you are connected, feeling connected, driven, led by God's Spirit, whether you are on autopilot, deadness continues on. Vibrancy comes from stopping being aware that God is alive and alive in us. That power, we not only are made alive, but we see the very things that we want to see happening if we would only stop and let God be at work within us. Jesus says not only do we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but we need to center our lives on the gospel. Now, I know that's a very common phrase that uh, Camper and I and others throw around here, but it's a vitally important one, and it's one that Jesus, I think, is saying to the church here in Sardis, if you are spiritually dead, not only do you need the Holy Spirit, but you need to find out what is the hub of your life. What is it the basis? What, what, is, what is it that is, is, is helping you to go? And, and Jesus is saying to these people, as we look in verse 3, remember then. He's addressed them about their da- they're spiritually dead. Remember then what you received and heard. And so he's calling them to remember something. And it's remember something that they have been given. It didn't come from themselves, but it was a gift that was given to them, and they received it by hearing it, because that's what he's saying. Remember what you have seen and heard. And I would suggest to you that it's the gospel. One reason I would suggest to you, if you go back into chapter 1, I won't do that right now, Jesus is declaring himself. These are his words, and as he's introducing himself at the beginning, he talks about, I am the one who was dead but is now alive. I'm the one who holds the keys to heaven and Hades. He's declaring himself to be the one who is the embodiment of the gospel message and that is received because it's been heard. And when heard, it has been believed. 
Jesus here, as he's talking to these people about their spiritual dryness and spiritual deadness, is essentially saying to them, part of the problem is that you've become centered around something else. It may be something good, but it's not what you are supposed to be centered on. You may be centered on mission. And so you're engaged in everything, but that center should be a byproduct, not the center of your life. You may be centered on pursuit of study, whether Bible study, theological study. You may be uh, centered on various relationships. All of these things are vitally important. It's easy to see how we can get off track. But Jesus is saying, here's what you need to remember when you're spiritually dead. You need to remember what you received when you heard it. And I would suggest to you that is the message that Jesus Christ, who is the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he came to take our place, experiencing the punishment that you and I deserved so that we would not need to experience it, then raised to dead, uh, raised from the dead after his uh, death being his punishment in order to show his authority and conquer the effect of it and then all of the promises that are associated with it. That we are free when we are in Christ, when we have believed the gospel, that we have been forgiven, that we have been made sons of God, that we are heirs with Christ, beautiful, glorious promises that show us the relationship that we have with God only because of what Jesus has done. And Jesus is saying, remember that message. And part of the reason that I say that it's, he's talking about that is because then he says that we are to not only remember, keep it and repent. And there he's describing a dynamic that reminds us that we never move beyond the gospel. We live in relationship, dynamic relationship to that historic truth in the person of Jesus Christ. Because keeping it, it's not, what are you supposed to keep in the gospel? Jesus died. Jesus rose. Jesus gives you the gift to believe. Our role is to believe. That's how we keep it. We keep it by realizing that whatever aspect of our lives, it's not untouched, unimpacted by keeping the gospel. We don't become the gospel. We don't do anything that enhances it, adds to it. We keep it by remembering it and applying it to our relationships, to our work, to our spiritual vibrancy. Every aspect of our lives is connected to that. And the keeping and repenting are not two separate things. They are two related things, the opposite sides of a coin. Because while we're called to keep it, the fact is we are so prone to forget it, just like the church in Sardis. And we go about our business, we center ourselves on other things. Martin Luther was once asked after church service by a man who had attended a number of times, Dr. Luther, why do you preach salvation by grace through faith week after week after week? And Luther looked them in the eye and says, because you forget it week after week after week. So some of you who are relatively new to this church and, or even newer than I am or maybe preceded me by a time may wonder why it seems to always come back to grace and the gospel week after week after week. I mean, you knew Camper was going to do it, but maybe you hoped for something new, and then they went out and found me, and I'm worse than he is. And then we let Ben preach every once in a while or Rob or Kent, doesn't matter, and everybody comes back to this message is because all of us are aware of the need that we have to be centered on the gospel, and we are also aware that we forget it 
week after week after week. And we are in constant need of reminder. And Jesus here is confronting the church and he's speaking to them and saying, you need to be reminded. We need to be reminded, not only because we are prone to it, because it's because we live in a culture that has essentially substituted something else for the gospel that is no gospel at all. And it's not just in churches that are unfaithful to the Scripture. They have a Bible. They may or may not read it. And they, who knows what they're going to talk about that don't teach the Bible. It's even in conservative evangelical churches where the gospel has been displaced by another message. Sociologist Christian Smith, he's a sociologist at Notre Dame, has coined, the phrase, uh, uh, coined a phrase that's associated with what he sees as the characteristic of the American evangelical church. He describes the situation by saying that if you were to ask the average person in church in America what it is they believe, their responses would come out be better summarized by a phrase that they believe in something like moralistic therapeutic deism than anything resembling historic Christ-centered Christianity. Now, whether you remember the phrase moralistic therapeutic deism, I like those phrases because I seem more smart, smarter than I am when I can throw those things out. But it's not difficult to see. And really, it's not difficult to understand why it has such a seductive influence upon us. But basically, it means this. Is in his experience, is in the church, that as other studies have indicated, 90% of Americans believe there is a God. Those going to church, by and large, believe there is a God. And if they are in church, by and large, they believe that there is one God and they believe in three persons. And they, by and large, believe that Jesus is God and the Son of God. But they can't tell you much more. They cannot tell you what God is like. They do not really understand how God functions, even as much as he's revealed himself to be. They're just simply contented to know there is a God and they believe in God, but they don't find him worthy of commitment to study, to learning. And furthermore, they believe that God's primary purpose and the purpose of our faith and religion is to make us better people and to feel better about ourselves. That's the moralism and the therapeutic part. In fact, in a study that he's done with some, he said that the responses that I was receiving from people about what they believed about their God, God functioned more like a butler or a therapist. He was always there when you needed him, but he doesn't butt in unless he's asked. But God is always there to, one, give us ways that we are to live our lives and to make us better people, and then to make us feel better about ourselves by proclaiming a grace that says God will love you and God forgives you anyway. See, the seductive part of that is there's not one thing that I said that is wrong. There is one true God. And God has laid out for us a way that he calls us to walk in holiness that we might become more like Christ. And the result of the gospel is that we are reconciled and that we are healed and we begin to see ourselves as God has created us and as God has made us to be. But the problem is that we shortcut the gospel aspect of that, taking the gospel out of it entirely and say, as long as I believe in God, and as long as I follow whatever rules there are, then I can feel better about myself. And when I don't measure up, when I feel inferior, well, then I will just cling to the concept of grace that God will forgive me, God loves me anyway. Has 
many of the parts, but it has been disconnected, and lives are not revolving around that. And that is characteristic of a lot of believers, and it's easy to become characteristic of our life. And Jesus is calling the church of Sardis and all believers back to saying, no, if you want life, it's not enough to just look at the individual parts, but your whole life must be centered around the truth of what Jesus has done, who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he has promised. And when you live there, then you will find renewal beginning to take place in your life and in your relationships and in your spirituality. Jesus says that we must be a people who are intentionally recentering our lives on the gospel. And I would say by the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit at work within us. There is a third thing that Jesus offers to us and to the church through the church of Sardis as well for our time of deadness. In addition to being filled with the Holy Spirit and centering our lives on the gospel, Jesus says that we need to live our lives before the face of God. It's a Latin phrase, quorum Deo, which is present in the text both at the beginning and at the end here. We see it in... In verse 2, when Jesus is speaking, and he says, first of all, wake up and strengthen what remains, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. And so the sight of my God basically means in the face of God, before the face of God, in the area where God can see. But then he also makes a promise toward the end uh, of this in verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father. Both of those phrases, verse 2 and verse 5, are quorum day. the concept of before the face of God, looking at it from different ends, but it's the concept of realizing that God is God, God is present, God is aware, and that we live our lives in relationship to a God who is alive and who is aware and who is present and who is an active in every aspect of our lives. Jesus is calling attention to that because it is so easy for us to be so caught up and what other people think about us, whether it's other people in the church, people in our family, people that live in our neighborhoods, at work, the culture at large, we are so consumed at times with what other people may think of us that while we are not uncaring of what God thinks, he is behind the line because he seems to be silent when other people seem all too free to offer their opinions of what they think of us. We live for their affirmation, we shrink from their criticisms, and we want simply to be accepted. And while we know God may be there, we do not live as if we are living before the face of God first and foremost. We see God sitting in the back seats. And we'll deal with him after we deal with everybody else. One of the things that Jesus is saying is that when we live before the face of God, God becomes forefront in, uh, of our lives. We are reminded of his holiness and of his love. We are aware, that, and, and that is a stimulating Thing for our lives. But when God is relegated to the back seats, it's not particularly influencing us. Three things that Jesus is addressing that are needed for us constantly to be reconnecting ourselves to, checking to see our vitality, not because we can make vitality, but because these, this is the power that we have, the grace that gives us the very things that we want by the activities we're engaging in. have a joy that sometimes doesn't make sense and the energy to function when we're worn out. To know that we are loved despite ourselves, and despite 
what we deserve and to know that we are not alone nor rejected, that God is with us. God loves us, has shown it by sending his son and sending his spirit to be alive within us. We experience deadness in a number of ways. Again, sometimes we are aware, sometimes we are not. But we all want a sense of being alive. And we're prone to think that it comes through activity. There's an interesting promise that Jesus is also making in all of this that is important for you to understand, which will compel you. Back to spiritual vitality. He says in the first part of the letter in verse 1 or that you have a reputation, or verse 2, you, uh, you have a reputation of being alive. Reputation is nothing more than doing things in order to make a name for yourself. Your reputation is what people, uh, attributes people associate with your name. And so when we all want a good reputation, we want good things associated with our name. So we do things in order to have people associate good things with our name. The question is, can we do enough? Do we burn out? Those are the issues. But that's what we are so prone to strive for. The promise is made in verse 5 when Jesus shows a connection because we tend to make a name for ourselves, but Jesus says that's not really the primary question we need to be wrestling with. In verse 5, he says this, I will never blot out, blot his name out of the book of life, those who are clinging to Jesus. So while we are prone to strive to make a name for ourselves, the real question is, is my name written in the book of life? How do I know if my name is written in the book of life? And while Jesus doesn't address it here, Scripture is very clear. If you believe that you are in need, that Jesus has been provided for you, and you believe and trust in what Jesus has done for you, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, not because you believe, but God has allowed you to believe, given you the gift to believe, because your name was written there, and it will never be blotted out. He has loved you when you were unlovely. He has loved you before you were there to love. And it's that understanding of the nature of the one true God, his great love for us. He's already accomplished everything that we strive for that wears us down, that drives us crazy. It's already given. If you'll just remember. And you'll keep that promise by believing. You believe because he's the one that keeps the promise. Repent when you find it difficult to believe. Jesus says this is the message. Spiritual vibrancy, these are essential keys. Because the one who has Christ is alive. He finishes by saying to whoever has ears, let him hear. Spirit is saying to you and to me. Father, we give thanks to you. Your Spirit is alive and at work within all who believe, exposing the areas of deadness, at the same time pointing us to the promise of life, not being punished, but being pruned and shaped. Pray, Lord, that as we, your people who are here today, hear this word, 
we take the time to discern whether or not we are coasting, satisfied with reputation or perhaps fearful that our reputation is not what we wish that it were. For those who are experiencing deadness and apathy, and those who are relying on their own efforts, your grace, remind us again and again that we have life in Jesus. The life that we now live is not lived for ourselves, but lived in him and by him and through him who is alive within us. To him be our glory and praise, along with you, our Father, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand.